Hi everybody, it's Tom here from Cricket Coach 365 and welcome to our latest podcast where I'm delighted and privileged to be joined by Charles Dagnall. Charles, as you probably know him more familiarly, is Daggers, Sky Sports commentator, broadcaster and also public speaker and compare where he and I uh, had a little uh, bit of banter last week at the Lancashire and Cheshire Grassroots Player Awards evening. Welcome uh, Daggers, if I can call you Daggers and thank you very much for making the time. Well, firstly, of course you can call me Daggers, considering the amount of grief that I gave you on your dress code, where everybody, there were 650 people in the room at the point, and all of whom were, if they were a gentleman dressed in, in shirt, suit and tie, or, or, or sports jacket and tie, uh, and the ladies dressed glamorously, etc., and then you lots up in jeans, skinny jeans, uh, although they were of very high quality, I will admit, uh, and uh, sports jacket, open shirt. Now, granted, I would have loved to have been dressed as you were, but since you were the only one dressed as you were, I thought, uh, there's a victim for me to play with. So I thought only it's only fair that I come back and, and, uh, and, and come and appear on your podcast after, uh, after you took it so well. So it's great to be here, Tom. Great to talk to you. Well, it, it, it was uh, in very good um, in very good humour that you, uh, you took, that took the proverbial out of me, and quite rightly so, because uh, it was actually a, a quite a serious debate in our house because my wife was supposed to have accompanied me, but was then unwell, so she didn't. And, and I said, "Well, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about wearing these," and she said, "Well, no, go for it, but you might find that um, you're not allowed to go in jeans, so just take a pair of you know smarter trousers anyway." So I actually did have a smarter pair of trousers in the car. Um, but uh, yeah, I managed to just about carry it off and everybody who uh, then came up to me afterwards basically called me the jeans guy after after your <laughs> reference so it was all good fun um, but but Daggers yeah so w- what we do um, is is very simple and by way of sort of introductions to the, the podcast and it gives um, the listeners the opportunity to get to know you a little bit more uh, and to to do that we ask the first question which is to describe explain or tell that first moment or recollection of where you first got interested in cricket well it's yeah i mean obviously everybody's story is it's possibly a little bit different mine will be quite routine i think it, you know i was always sort of handy at ball sports at school and uh, loved being around, loved running around like any young kid does. Um, and it was actually a mate of mine who said, well, you should come up to the local cricket club. We go down there on a Friday. And I said, well, what do you do? I'm going to play cricket. And, and, you know, they just did some classic bat and ball, sort of quick cricket type of things. It wasn't quick cricket back then. Um, but it was a lovely Friday evening. It was sunny and warm. And that was the first big tick in the box for me. Um, was that it was warm. I like the warm. I don't necessarily like running out in shorts in freezing cold weather and the warmth and, and the atmosphere as well of all the kids there. There must have been 100 kids sort of on the outfield at Heaton Creek Club in Bolton. Um, and it was a nice setting as well. The grass was super green and it was all mown nicely. I went, oh, this is nice. Um, and as it turned out, just had an aptitude for bat and ball and, you know, um, the first connection with tennis ball on the middle of the bat and you see it go miles and you think oh this is good and then you got to bowl and and everyone got involved and they did it very well to encourage the love of the game uh, and to encourage just general I mean really what it was was to to try and get kids down and get interested in cricket but also activity and and being outside and running around 
Um, so that was what I loved doing. But then, you know, so I went, oh, I'll, I'll go the week after and then the week after that. And then suddenly, you know, the coaches and the volunteers down there, you know, introduce you to more aspects of the game, which then you think about and they, they sort of meld with you a little bit. Um, and they resonate and you think, oh, oh, this tactic's quite interesting. Oh, what if I put a man here or a man? And then slowly and surely you get absorbed by the game. And when the season was done, I was like, wow, I'm gutted, absolutely gutted. And so you look for winter nets then to try and play a little bit of cricket in the winter time and, um, and you wait for the next season to roll around. And, and yeah, and that was my first interest. And it was actually another friend who took me to a different cricket club in Bolton. Um, British Aerospace in Lostock, um, where it really then started to grow. So from small seats, but it was the warmth, really. It's not a, <laughs> it's not a massively, um, uh, you know, it's, it, it wasn't the tactics, it wasn't the, the, the feeling of bat on ball, it was actually being warm was the, and, and playing around in the summer and then having a drink afterwards, you know, as a kid, you know, a bit of squash or whatever it was after running around and getting sweaty. But that was where the first seed was planted, really. I think you've painted a brilliant picture, and I think for anybody who uh, knows the Northwest, I mean, we 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 live um, not too far away from that area that you described. Um, that uh, that picture of a, a beautiful evening on a Friday is a very very rare occurrence, um, even in the, even in the, in the midst of summer. So uh, to have been able to have. Uh, to have timed it so well with your friend asking you to go down that first time on such a lovely evening um you, oh. you, 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 it was obviously meant to be that uh, that welcome was yeah, supposed absolutely. to be so warm you see they grabbed you the game grabbed you it just so happened to be warm that evening but it put it this way it wasn't as you know being in the northwest it wasn't cold and that was the key. If it was cloudy, that's all right. If it was, a, you know, a little bit sort of whatever. I didn't have to stick on shorts and then freeze to death <laughs> in Baltic temperatures as we would get in January and February. This time it was sort of, you know, 18, 19 degrees. Now that's a hell of a difference, especially when you're running around and stuff. So, yeah, it was... It, it, but it just so happened that first evening was just glorious and the setting is very, very... Yeah, it's lovely there. Um, beautiful at Heaton Creek Club. Yeah. Uh, banking on one side and chairs and, and, and benches to sit on and it's in a sort of little valley. Yeah. Very picturesque and minute type of ground. Um, and so that was, it was more the ambience really and the warmth and, and thinking this is really, this is a nice place to be. Yeah. I like being here. Um, you know, had I gone down to Farnworth Social Circle Cricket Club, which has got concrete all around and housing estate and, and all the rest, I might have got a different feeling, but sorry to Farnworth Social Circle, but you know, you get my point. It was one of those where just immediately a little tuning fork went off uh, and I thought, yeah, I like this. This is good. And so even if the next Friday was a bit cloudy or next Friday was a little bit more chilly and this stuff, it was the game that grabbed me on that particular night that meant that I went back for more. I think I think it's a, an interesting uh, reflection just to c comment on briefly because um, as in, as you know I'm involved in uh, recreational cricket myself and mm. and it's a real battle to to try and find the the perfect um, menu of ingredients to entice 
families and children to come to a club in the first place if yeah. they've never played before because you know it is still uh, true to say that cricket is a minority sport compared to football and rugby yeah. league especially in the northwest rugby league um so i think the weather does play a, a, a more perhaps a more significant part than we perhaps you know we, we perhaps uh, think about uh, but it, you're happens also... at, it happens at the pro game happens yeah. at the pro game yeah. you've got a 2020 match you can put, if it's a boiling hot day, you can put another, if, I use Leicestershire as a really good example, um, where, you know, the ground holds 6,000, 7,000. They would expect for a 2020 game probably 3,000, maybe something like that. You can add another 1,500 people if it's hot. Yeah. It's as simple as that. And, yeah. and that's why people will come out and enjoy it, have a beer or whatever. Yeah. Uh, watching the cricket, but the weather is so dictatorial in, in how cricket performs yeah no you're you're absolutely spot on but I think the other thing that uh, came through loud and clear for me listening to you reflect on that first moment was it was a friend who introduced you so you had somebody who um, you knew who brought you along to to kind of give you that introduction and then also you you referenced um, and complimented the club in terms of how they made you feel welcome so I think those those three things the weather friend and hospitality from the club was the perfect not storm yeah. that's not the right word but the perfect uh, mixture uh, to to have hooked you so so what how old were you then daggers and 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 yeah i would have been about 10 right so you found winter nets and you carried yeah, on I found winter nets and i got good quite quick yeah um because of that that you know that it's sort of almost you know love at first sight type of type of thing i thought you know i was i was decent at the other sports i was i was a pretty good footballer you know not outstanding not to get signed up or anything like that but i was i was good um and most things because at that age you know still um i watched every sport on tv snooker balls you name it if it was on rugby league rugby union if it was on i'd watch it um and but this was something that, and I always tried to play them. Um, but this was something that I just genuinely wanted to. to I, I fell in love with it instantly, and so even though I was sort of playing around with it a little bit in that first summer, um, and we sort of banged the ball around at school, um, it was then that I got quite good very quickly due to things like winter nets, organised coaching. Um, in the in the sort of local area, and so yeah, my my abilities were, you know, got, went from sort of naught to say six in in a very short space of time. So uh, yeah, into and then playing much more organised hardball cricket. So what 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 were your um, recollections of playing through the Lancashire um, pathway system, and then? Uh, going into um, it, you know, as, 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 a, as a young professional? Uh, I loved it. I mean, I, um, <laughs> there is a little uh, caveat to this, and I'll come to it in a moment. Um, in, in a sort of, if I knew now what I knew, what I didn't know then. I would play, and I got good quickly, and would play club under 13s, and I was good enough to play club under 15s, and at times good enough to play club under 18s at the age of 12 and 13. And so they would play midweek at, at, at nights. Soon enough, I got good enough to play club second team at 13 years old. So 
I was playing with blokes, I was mixing with blokes and, and all of that. As for, and, and that's maybe a different topic, but as for the Lancashire pathways, you know, you had to go to trials. You went to your trials in the winter and then you got invited to summer trials and then you would get invited to a North versus South game, which wasn't a North versus South game. It was just the 22 best players and they divvied them up <laughs> as a trial. And I, for a little while, sort of wondered if I was good enough because there were lads who had been playing there since six or seven years old. So I didn't kind of, this was all very new to me. Um, and felt a little bit of pressure at, at, at that age as a kid, but you know, they obviously saw something in me. And I, I played Lancs under thirteens, but not a lot, just the odd game here and there. But you know, playing for Lancashire and you're sort of representative. But what I continued to do, slightly different to the other kids of that age group, was that they also were dual sport yeah. people. Uh, played football uh, in the winter time and at a pretty good level as well. Uh, and I still encourage all children to, to play as many sports as you can and, and because I think other sports can help in the one that you eventually choose to do. Yeah. But I loved cricket that much that all I wanted to do was play cricket. I just wanted to play cricket and I was to next. If there was a next somewhere else, I wanted to to go and win to net with them and I wanted to go and win to net with a different club and I went, cause, because I had a Thursday free so I wanted to go and uh, net with them so just and so my acceleration in abilities from age 13 to 14 was enormous plus I grew and I grew big and I grew quick and so at 14 I'm you know I'm six foot at 14 and it's quite uh, other kids didn't necessarily grow that quickly or you know i was a big old unit of 14 <laughs> bowling from a great height and it was quite threatening um at, at that time uh and so then i started to overtake those and then by the age of under 15 cricket um you know i was kind of one of the best players um both with that ball and, and and so became quite a sort of dominant force in my age groups um and you know i thought the pathway was absolutely magnificent and i had a little blip in um, 16 where i thought i was better than i was uh, or not necessarily that i had a bit of an attitude at 16 um because i had accelerated so quickly i was a big guy and maybe i should have just focused a little bit more but you know, so you have these clips and you learn. Um, so, so I admit freely that I was probably a bit of an idiot at 16 and trying to give it the big one, um, and that didn't help my cricket whatsoever. Um, luckily, you know, I had parents and, and, you know, my father and, and moreover, people at my club, because I was playing men's cricket, um, very quickly able to knock me down if I got too big for my boots. Um, there's one character in particular who, who I might come to, but but uh, they were always keeping my feet on the ground a little bit. And then the realization kicked in at sort of 17 that um, and and my progression kept on you know kept on going up and up and up. And by under 19 level, you know, I was a bloke. I was my regular first thing. Well, I was proing in the leagues by then. Um, I changed clubs here, there, here and there, and, and stuff. And my abilities were getting to a state of, of now pretty high quality. Um, where you would be playing Lancashire second team cricket and club and ground games and that sort of stuff. But the the 
whilst I was growing, whilst I was developing as a bloke and both bodily, mentally, um, and skillfully within the game, all of those things were, were growing. I was still trying to find a game anywhere I could. Um, whatever level or whatever that be, a club level or a county level, whatever. So I played a lot of cricket. And at no, Lancashire under 19 level, I was player of the year. Um, and I was, uh, even I thought, you know what, in a nice way, yeah, you're a good one. You, you could, you, you know, you, you, you could be doing this professionally at a county. And I, all, I hoped beyond all hope that Lancashire would sign me. I'd seen other signings go that way and, and friends of mine had got signed, but I didn't, I didn't get signed at Langs, um, which was devastating. I mean, genuine, all I wanted to do was play professional cricket. And when you are player of the year, when you have come on so much and, and you know, we're fast bowlers and at the time that's what I was, um, you know, they, they always seem to get taken on and you weren't, that really did affect me a lot. Um, and so there was that getting over that hurdle, um, and, and then subsequently I went to, went down a different route. But through the pathway, so I'll answer your question, the pathway I adored. Coaches were great. Um, I liked the organisation of it looking back. Um, I'm sure sometimes, but good friends made as well. Mm. Friends that, that, well, I wouldn't say friends is, is too tight a term, but um, colleagues and teammates that, you know, if you were to see them now, 25 years on it would be nice to see them um you know i still i'm in, still in touch with freddie you know fred yeah. was two years below me um and so he was playing under 13s whilst i was playing under 15s i still remember this little blonde kid who was sort of like you know looking over the back of the coach seats at the senior players in the under 15s like me and stuff like that uh, and, and you know so uh, it's nice to see how they've all progressed. It's also yeah. nice to see how they've progressed in life. But um, but yeah, it was. I really enjoyed that period of my life. Did I play too much? There's the caveat. Did I play too much? Yeah, probably I did. And you don't think about that. And there was no rules set for the amount of overs that you bowled or anything like that. So here's me having retired at the age of 28 with shin problems. I've got one brand new knee, uh, prosthetic knee in there and stuff like that. But look, I look back, would I change it? No, 100%. But there is that caveat. We didn't necessarily get looked over after then as they do now, but I wouldn't change it. Yeah, I think, but I think that's a sign of the times. I think you know um, we're probably a, of a similar age and generation, and um, there, there just wasn't the sports science or the understanding of the impact, especially for bowlers, um, of of workload. Um, but I mean, now it, it's it's very carefully monitored and um, almost re almost regulated. Uh, but at that time where you weren't signed by Lanks and you described it as really devastating, you then said that you you know kind of went down a different path so yeah so what, so what was that what was that path you chose to go down at that point so i was always intending on going to university um and i'd turned pro at 17 in the leagues and so i played at astley and tilsley collieries in the bolton association i pro there for my first gig when i was 17 turning 18 30 quid a week um, or 30 quid a game, I should say. And that was my first gig, and then I went to Walshaw. Uh, and this all helped me pay through university and stuff. But 
whilst I was at university, and people sort of say, oh, what did you study at university? I studied chemistry at university. And people just go, God, I didn't know you that clever. And I went, no, I'm not that clever. But they were desperate for chemistry students, and I enjoyed the topic. So it's not as though, like, a, you know, but there was lab coats and glasses and all that, so you got to play with some really funky stuff. Um, <laughs> but I always wanted to be. That was the fallback, the, 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 the university degree. And whilst I was at university, um, my dad's very much, he's a businessman, he was a salesman, uh, and very much a very positive man. And he just sort of said, look, if they don't want you, then you've got to see if someone else will. You've got to go out there, you've got to sell yourself. You've got to get... And I, it's very difficult to, at that age, yeah. because you've had a piece of bad news. You've had uh, someone say, you're not good enough. Yeah. And that's actually where you think you are. So to try and change your own mind at that age, when you've had all of your hopes and dreams dashed, if you like, is a difficult thing to do. And it wasn't just my dad saying this, because he never played cricket, he, but he knew business and he knew how to sell. That was his, his thing. So he would say, well, if Langs don't want you, maybe someone else will. Go ring a coach, go and ring Worcestershire, go and ring Derbyshire, go and write a letter off to Gloucestershire, go and speak. Well, that's not easy. No. But he sort of made me do it. And the other thing was, there were people in, in the cricketing world who sort of thought, who, who raised an eyebrow as to that I didn't get signed and said, you know, we think you are good enough kind of thing. And so that then starts to give you the confidence within to think well maybe if I try and make a nuisance of myself <laughs> to the county coaches that someone else will give me an opportunity so that's what I did for three years I went trialling whilst I was at university so I went trialling around all of the counties I actually hold a record believe it or not as the most counties trialled for i.e. a game played in the second team before actually getting to signed. I played for 13 counties, games for 13 counties. For those five that I didn't play for, I actually played against. So everyone had a look at me. <laughs> and it was weird going into different dressing rooms, you know, as an 18 year old saying I'm good enough. But, you know, especially when you're playing in second teams with professionals who are on staff, whether it be at Nottinghamshire, and that was my first game for Nottinghamshire against Worcestershire. At Worcester, and I was, went into the Nottingham dressing room, and, and it's really weird. And then, so I did that for two years, and then my final year of university, I, you know, I was playing minor counties by then, so obviously I was at a decent standard and, and doing well in the minor counties. But I thought, do you know what? After this last year, I'm going to give it another go for, for one more year, and in my last year of uni, and then if they, no one signs me at the end of this. I'm done. I'll go into work, the working world and be happy at that and probably in the leagues and play minor counties and all of that. And then I got to, and what's weird about walking into these dressing rooms where essentially you're trying to take someone else's job. Yeah. So a lot of these dressing rooms were not very welcoming. Yeah. They made you feel uncomfortable to try and put you off because they, they wanted to keep their job. Now, you know, and I made a point if I ever got signed of always welcoming people in because I did I felt awful walking in and felt 
ostracized and not very comfortable at all and 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 i can understand it to one degree but i just made a promise to myself that if there was ever a case like that there was a trialist coming in that i wouldn't be like that and make them feel welcome anyway i walked into the warwickshire dressing room warwickshire finally gave me a a chance uh the second team again i walked into a dressing room with basically the warwickshire team of the 90s involved they, that, that's who was in that second team dressing room. Andy Moles, Dominic Osler, Trevor Penny, Tim Munson, Gladstone Small, David Hemp, Paul Keith Smith. Piper, Mohammed Sheikh, Smithy wasn't there, just gone by then. Um, uh, I love Paul Smith, my God, what a dude. Um, and <laughs> I'll tell you a story about him later. Um, so there were eight regular first teamers in that dressing room. But the difference was that they were pretty secure in their contracts and their places in the cricketing world. So they had nothing to prove to anyone. Yeah. They didn't, it wasn't as though I was taking their job. Yeah. And so they made me feel welcome. And they made you, they talked to you and they, they encouraged you and stuff. So I immediately felt comfortable. And I thought, well, and apparently the story goes, now, now I then continued to trial for Warwickshire. They asked me again next week if I could play and I did well again, and and so on and so on and so on. It turns out that they'd made the decision to sign me in my first game, but they didn't tell me. So I played five more trial games for them and continued to bowl well. Uh, Played one for Essex in between times where I did well. And I was a little bit older and a bit more confident in myself as well. And... At the end of that season, Warwickshire signed me, which was just, oh, wonderful. One of the best days of my life, because I'd finally done it. You know, after three, well, after many years of trying, um, I'd finally done it. But two notes on that. I wanted to do it so much. I was still proing in the leagues at Great Harwood Cricket Club in the Ribblesdale League. And as the pro, you bowled 25 overs. Yeah. 25 overs, one end. And I was bowling 25 at one end on a Saturday, 25 at one end on a Sunday. I'd then go and travel on a Tuesday to play second team cricket, where I'd probably bowl 50 overs. And then I'd do it again on Saturday. So so in the space of about six or seven weeks, I bowled around about 600, 700 overs, which is a crazy amount. But what do you want to do? Do you want to be a pro? Do you want to? So you did it. Um, and, And so it was properly hardcore. That, that period of time, but I, I eventually got signed. But as it turned out, Andy Moles was the captain, and he was probably coming towards the end of his career. And he was stood at short leg, and believe it or not, I used to have people at short leg. And I was bowling in the second innings against Essex in the second team at Mosley Cricket Club. And he said, Degas, I'm, I'm going to come out of short leg. And I just went, something, I, I don't know why, and I said to Andy Moles, who scored 30,000 first-class runs by Hollis, and I'm some Muppet trialist from Bolton, and I said, Andy, can you stay in? I think I'm going to get him here. And he went, OK, which was great. I mean, it was fantastic. Very next ball, Tim Phillips, short delivery, off the splice, caught short leg, and by Andy Moles. And Andy apparently walked back into the dressing room at the team break and turned around to the coaches and went, sign him, sign him. That was it. 
but I didn't know that. So I was still panicking for six weeks, <laughs> bowling a ridiculous amount of overs, uh, not knowing that the decision had already been made to sign me. So that was nice. And hence why I got signed for Warwickshire and just adored it there. Absolutely adored it there. And it was the atmosphere within that club that was just amazing. I mean, it's a fantastic story. Um, just you know, we could probably chat about about that just uh, for you know for the whole the rest of the the conversation. But I think um, it's an interesting one as well to hear um, about your determination to um, to keep knocking on doors um, and the support of your dad as a as a businessman and a salesman and you know encouraging you to keep uh, keep trying keep asking the question and even when you were successful not knowing that you were successful until five six games afterwards i mean they, they may never have even you, you may never have even found that out i think it's lovely that you did find it out uh, yeah. because, because um, i'm sure there are many cases of people who have been in a similar situation whether it be cricket or other sports or even you know a non-sporting environment um where decisions have been made almost you know, as you shake hands, or you wouldn't shake hands now, but you know, elbows or whatever. And uh, within, <laughs> within the first thirty seconds, people have made that their minds up, yes or no. Um, and if it's a yes, they might not tell you that uh, at all. Yeah. So yeah. it's a brilliant story, and um, you know, for the for the benefit of uh, those who don't you know, aren't seeing Dagger's face uh, when he talked about you know that eventual eventuality of being signed, his whole face lit up. So um, it was a picture of euphoria um, in person. Yeah, it, I, I think back to it now. It, it's funny you should say. I remember, and it was it, tough is, is relative. Um, I remember my dad saying, "Phone this phone," and me being in tears because I wanted to do it so much, and I was so scared to ring these people, and. Um, and my dad's beauty, it, I just adore him. And he, <laughs> he, 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 he's one of these people that, that just wants to help. Yeah. And he, he is the most generous and helpful man. But he's also got no filter either, mm. whatsoever. And I think he doesn't I, he understand. get on well. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 he has no filter whatsoever. So he doesn't understand why he can't do it. Just go and do it. And, and how awkward I felt and how uh, so scared I was to ring these people but like I said I look back at it now and thank god he did and and you know is um it was it, it, it was mainly him and and getting that sort of attitude if you like from him I'm still not really I'm not my gears um but those things sort of filter down uh for, for obviously for your parents the other man was uh, was the pro at our club at the British place, Paul Kelly, who then became my coach, even though he went on to different clubs. Um, and what I learned from him in a team environment, you know, and I don't think I'd be doing what I do now if it wasn't for Paul. He's an absolute monstrous man, a huge man. He's six foot seven, six foot seven wide and high. I mean, just he's built like a wardrobe, but dead set the funniest man I've ever met in my life. And the way he dealt with people and the way he dealt with me, I don't, and that sort of camaraderie and banter and, and you know, having an answer and a joke for everything. I, I genuinely believe it's down to those two people as to why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Yeah, but I think that's a lovely accolade that you, you pay both to your dad and to Paul. I think that um, not every club 
especially as um, you know, you described playing second team cricket as as young as thirteen. Uh, not every club has a leader, a captain, with those interpersonal skills, with those leadership skills, uh, to be able to get the best out of uh, that youngster. Not just from a playing point of view, but from a, from an attitudinal and behavioural point of view. So the fact that you had Paul there in, in at that time. Um, I, can, I can really relate to that because I think that those characters, those personalities are so important in influencing yeah. um, you know, how, how well people go on from there. So, so if, you, if, if you don't mind, if we can kind of just you know, navigate more towards your, your career going into, out, out of the game, but into yeah. uh, broadcasting. Um, so how did that come about and how did your sort of interest around the women's game also emerge? I'll keep this one really short because um, <laughs> it's a long old story. Uh, and I do, I, I am aware that I do go on. Um, it's kind of part of the gig though. That's that's the unfortunate thing. Um, so I was playing at Warwickshire and I got taken around and, and in the first session of the game, the TV presenter, Nick Owen, would come and watch. We used to, yeah, you know, remember Nick Owen, yeah. And he would come and watch the first session, and then go off to Paddle Mill in yeah. Birmingham. Yeah. And he said, "Do you want to come down one time and have a look?" And I went, "Yeah, that'd be great fun." So I went to watch a show go out on TV, and I was just enraptured by the whole thing. But moreover, by the radio studio studios, live radio going out. Oh my God, these people are speaking to cars, and I'm watching them do it speaking to people in their homes and their cars and I saw it real, you know, and I was always kind of a bit of a character and always had a word and that was down to, you know, being, um, you know, my parents and, and, and Paul. So, and letting that personality shine, that, you know, with this uh, sort of real performance in, within our family, there's just a performing aspect. And so that was always encouraged. So, so I went in. And then I changed from Warwickshire to Leicestershire. The local radio came down, interviewed me as a new player, and said, anything else you're interested in? I said, well, I'm interested in coming on the radio. Within a week, I was on the radio, doing a cricket show with Radio Leicester. And then in the winter times, I went in and learned the trade, because I, I wanted to do that. I thought I was so excited by it. As it turned out, when I had to retire through injury at 28, I'd been doing Radio Leicester, local radio for three years so I just naturally went into local radio and bizarrely I did not only did I do cricket commentary I also did drive time breakfast shows sports programs um, you know the football and the rugby in Leicester uh, would do all sorts of different things Christmas shows and uh, music and stuff like that so I spent a huge amount of time uh, there and honing my cricket commentary because I wasn't stupid. I realized that I didn't have the best career. I wasn't an England player. So for me to have longevity and do what I wanted to do, which was to originally be on Test Match Special, I didn't want to be the pundit. I didn't want to be the expert. I wanted to be the guy that describes it to you because that's what I enjoyed doing, painting pictures and uh, being your friend in, in um, your car or your home, being company. I enjoy that aspect. It's still good. Um, and talking to you, you know, I'm one of those characters where, you know, if, you, if, if, you're lonely, if you're lonely or if you've got no one, I'll be your mate. Don't worry about that. I'll be your pal. And um, that's what I wanted to give 
when I was working on local radio. So similarly with TMS. And so I got invited to do TMS at a domestic level first, and they liked what I did. So I got, in 2012, got invited to do the men's, uh, men's one day internationals. And I, when I first got that, I genuinely, I cried. Um, because I never got to play for England as a cricketer. I wasn't good enough. Um, but when, you know, 600 odd people have played for England men's team, only 30 odd people had covered TMS ball by ball. And I was one of them. And, I, and that to me was a big, big deal. And so, um, so <laughs> it was a bit daunting. I won't lie. My first, my first commentary is England versus the West Indies at the Rose Bowl commentary team. Uh, the Sunrise was Michael Vaughan and Phil Tuckerball. That was okay because I knew those guys pretty well. Vic Marks, who I hadn't listened to and was just a gem, uh, and Viv Richards. And I was like, oh my God, here we go. Um, talking about being daunted. And then the other, but the, the people who were describing it were Jonathan Agnew, the voice of Cricket on the radio, Tony Cozier, one of the greatest broadcasters yep. that's ever lived, yep. and me, some moron from Bolton. So I'm just like, oh my God, what are people going to think? Anyway, it went well. And so then it was the BBC. And then women's cricket hadn't had really any exposure by then, not really. And then I got asked to do the England women versus India women from Taunton. And alongside, and, and so I've been broadcasting a long time, but then they invited two newbies along to be the summarizers, two former England women's cricketers, and they were Ishigura and Abedi Rankford Brent. And it was myself and Kevin Howells on commentary, and Isha and Ebony were, that was their first gigs as um, as commentators or as summarizers. And they were just lovely, just lovely, raw, fantastically raw. But I believe that was their first gig. Now I've been doing, I've been doing TMS then for about a year and a bit or whatever, um, and was asked to do it. So there were these two, raw voices uh, both who had different you know qualities to them and that was my first sort of taste of the women's game and I look back at it now and you know people like Mitali Raj were playing and Chilanka Swami and Hector yeah. Bisht I think was playing for India and then for England obviously Lottie and Sarah Taylor and Lydia yeah. Greenway and Jenny Gunn um, and all of those those players and I looked at it and went, this is good. This is, you know, because I'd only been involved in men's cricket, you know, since that time. But I'd heard about Charlotte Edwards and, and Lydia and people, but I'd never watched them play really. Um, because my time was di- d- d- devoted to, to the men's game. So I went, like, this is good. And some bits were crap. I won't lie, some bits were, oh, that's not very good. And some bits were very good, but I really enjoyed myself. But obviously I was enjoying it because I was commentating on it, so I was enjoying that aspect of it. But ever since that, I went, and I looked at the game, and I went, this could be so much better. But there's no money. Where's the money? This could be so much better. They need help. The game needs help. Not women need help. The game needs help. Yeah. Needs help. It needs money thrown at it. It needs better coaches, better systems, 
better domestic structures, better pitches. And because what you've got here is you've got something. Because the games themselves were actually very entertaining, but it, the quality was lacking in certain areas. You know, for, there was one Lydia Greenway in the field. Yeah. The rest were pretty ordinary. Yeah. And at, at times, pretty basic. Lids was the outstanding. Now, what if you had 10 Lydia Greenways on a side? Mm. The bowling was Catherine Brunt. What if you had more of Catherine Brunt? Or more of, I mean, England were a good side at the time. But there was, you know, there were some stars there, but, but they were the elite. What if you had more? More. We need money. Well, the game needs money. Uh, because there's something there. There really is. And then suddenly, as soon as things start getting exposure, that's when the money starts coming. Mm. And I think not only for the women's game, we should, you know, it, it needed to be done. It had to be done and should have been done um, and was eventually done. Quick enough, that's for others to, to decide. But I think everybody started realising then, and around about then was, and especially the Women's World Cup in 2013, I went to the Women's World Cup in India, covered that, and I thought, as soon as this starts getting the exposure it's doing, and it got more on television, more on the radio, you're going to have to start thrusting some money their way. Because A, it deserves it, but B, you're not going to get the product you can possibly get if you don't. And thankfully, from there on in, in certain quarters, uh, the money has been thrown at it by England, by Australia, yeah. and those two in the main. Uh, there's a lot more that I could talk about about that but that was where my interest in the women's game came from and I've been basically with it ever since I've loved it absolutely loved it and what I've loved is seeing the game grow from when I first saw it and I realise there's a huge history to the women's game but I talk about recent history because that that's where we're starting to see the change and around about 2012 2013 that's when we start to see a discernible change in the game and um, to watch it grow to what it's become and what it still can be has been thrilling, absolutely thrilling. And to be a teeny tiny part of it, broadcasting it and being as involved in the women's game as it has been as a broadcaster has been joyous, utterly joyous. Well, I think, I think um, some of the people that we've had on uh, the podcast uh, previously, former players, um, we also had um, Mark Robinson as a guest um, who obviously yeah. coached at the time, but was also a former player like yourself um, I think one of the things that struck me is how how sudden the shift between um, amateur and professional um, how, how, it, how it all kind of shifted so quickly um, so e even to the extent by which it was only in the last year 18 months that you know professional contracts have been awarded by the ECB um, for non-England players um, yeah. So, and, and that then coincided with the hundred, which everyone had an opinion about, myself included. I'm sure you as well. Uh, before, before we knew what what was going to unfold, and before we knew that COVID th um, thrust together the women's game on the same day as the men's. Um, but some of my earliest guests were, uh, you, you probably know these people. So, um, so Sophie Luff. Um, yeah. Yeah. And. Um, 
and Danny Gibson. Now, Sophie's captain of a county, Danny's not, uh, but they both got an opportunity uh, through being contracted um, by the ECB to, to play in the 100. Um, but a lot of non-contracted players still had the opportunity to do that. And, you know, it's, it's just been an enormous success. So what, what's your, I say, success from a, an exposure point of view based on what you've talked about in terms of what um, needed to happen in the game? Being in your role as a broadcaster, as a lover of the game, um, what was your, what's your reflection on the 100 and, and how it helped or how it contributed to the women's game? So there is so much, there was so much, and there still is so much absolute garbage spoken about the 100. It's, it just astounds me. And I'm very much of the opinion that, look, I'm not a decision maker. So therefore, um, but I really like cricket. And I know this is a basic thing to say, <laughs> but if there's a game of cricket, uh, and someone wants me to go and watch it and talk about it, I'll go and do it. I don't care what it is. I couldn't care less what the level is because I love the game. So I still maintain that people are sour at the 100 because of this and because of that. Well, you know, there's a game of cricket that, that 20,000 people want to go and watch, so tell me how that's a bad thing. Tell me how people going to watch a game is a bad thing. And I'm sure there are counter-arguments to it and all of that. Look, the 100, I was always of the belief that, I, and when the right deal was signed, I'm going to be sort of, you know, there's a roundabout way to my point. When the rights deal was signed between the ECB and BBC and the and Sky, yeah. that was on the, uh, on the proviso that a new tournament would be provided. And it originally was going to be a 2020 tournament, they turned it into the 100, and, but that was, so a new tournament had to be, which could not have been a county tournament. Right. So let's nip that one in the bud straight away. Counties are spewing about this, that, the, you know, oh, we could have made the 2020 blast uh, free to air it. No, you couldn't, because you couldn't have games on every night televised, a standalone televised game every night. You couldn't do that with the blast. Um, there was a proviso in the new in the broadcast rights deal that you had to have a new competition. So there, and, and I sort of welcome the franchise aspect. Now, were there PR disasters on the way to the 100 starting? God, yeah. Huge amount of PR disasters. They couldn't decide what it was. Are we going to call them overs? Are we going to call them outs? Are we all oh, going to change it from a 2020 competition to 100 balls? And no one seemed to know what was going on. <laughs> and there was so much toing and throwing and, yeah, cry kid. I mean, it was a mess. It really was a mess. But I never really got involved in that. Because I was always of the opinion then, you know, I, I will not and I will never ever judge something until I've seen it. Mm. Let's wait till the cricket starts. Wait, wait till the cricket starts. If it's rubbish then, mm. then fine, nail it. Yeah. By all means. Yeah. But, but if it's, if you know, just wait. Let's have a look. The point you made about um, the double headers. Oh my goodness me, has that fallen in their lap? They weren't going to do it. They were going to go to other places and play. Goodness gracious me. What? I mean, and, and I can understand why they did it totally. Um, but that has been such a, a fillip for uh, the ECB and for the women's game that the women and the men were playing on uh, the same day. And now, Tell you another thing. The women and the men internationally used to play on the same day. The only problem was they used to have about two hours prior in the, between the game. 
should watch. So people could watch the women's game, wait an hour and a half, two yeah. hours before the men's game started. Well, people wouldn't rock up to that. You know, thousand, two thousand people had bought tickets for the men's game. Yeah, that's what they had done. The difference with the hundred is there was a half hour turnaround. Exactly. Or whatever it was between the end of the women's game and the start of the men's. Yeah. So people would would could find things to do, go to the loop, fill up up a drink, listen to listen to the bands that yeah. were on there, on the DJs, and they made it all very, very inclusive. It made it for a day of cricket, which people could buy a ticket, and that encouraged them to go to the earlier game. And during summer holidays, of course, when parents were kids looking for something to do, let's go down and take them to the thing, uh, to the cricket. And so I didn't know how it would all play out. But seeing what I've seen, and this is only after one year, so let's see how it beds in. Let's see if it continues in the way that it has. There's no reason to think why it wouldn't. But from a broadcast perspective, um, if you're going to do something, do it loud. Mark Butcher says that, and he's dead right. And it was loud, and it was noisy, and it was razzmatazz and it was bands and it was lights and it was and people say oh it's the dumbing down <laughs> I didn't get that no. the cricket was still fantastic but they just got more stuff with it look I'm I, I'm not the best person to talk about this I'm a massive American sports fan I'm an NFL fan and they do things and when they do it they do it loud because they want to grab you Americans want to grab your attention and keep your attention and not give it away to any other sport or anybody else. They do it when the NFL comes to London. Yeah. What cricket needed to do, and they did do. And for me, what it's given is, A, the exposure to the women's game. I mean, that first game has done so much. It was on free-to-air, it was on Sky Sports, it was on the radio, and you've got a big crowd for a women's domestic game as opposed to an international game that is a huge thing it showed you the depth that was out there which has been building for a number of years right back from when i talked about 2012 2013 when pieces were starting to be put into place it now shows the depth it was a quality product it wasn't crap that's the simplicity of it it was a really good product you also got the England internationals playing, which has a big bearing on that. You had um, good pitches. You had the facility for people to come. And by the time that they were coming, granted, still of the mentality of going to watch the men's game, but it's more of, oh, let's go and look at the women. I want to say, this is really good. We'll come next time. And that's what it's done for the women's game. And so I believe that the 100 for the men hasn't been a huge win it's been great I've enjoyed it really enjoyed it but I enjoy men's cricket I love women's cricket and I love seeing the new players that we've seen the pressure that they've been put under uh, which you wouldn't have got in domestic cricket before seeing how they've stood up the new uh, I've talked about the new names but the skills that they've shown and I believe that we have not even come close to tapping into the talent that is potentially out there. And what the 100 will do for girls and women around the country to say that this, I can play this, 
I can do this. I want to get involved in this. It's never happened before. It hasn't. And only a, you talk about niche sports or minority sports. That's what it's been in a much bigger way for women. Now, they've seen what they can possibly be. And as in, in the, within the game. And that it, there is avenues there for them to go and do that. And I just think it will do so much. And we will start to see an even better product next year. And better in the year before, after that. And so on and so on and so on. And that's so exciting. <laughs> it really is properly exciting. I, I ended up going to the 100 and looking forward to the women's games more than men's. And that is a genuine thing. And because I, I was thrilled to see Sophie Love, Danny Gibson, Alice Capsey, Alice Davidson Richards. These are not England players, no. but I got to see them and see them perform, see what's out there. You know, I, then, just as a final thought, we then went to Chelmsford for the England versus uh, New, New Zealand T20 internationals. Chelmsford do it brilliantly, they do. And it was a not far off being a full house due to COVID and all that sort of stuff, as many people as they're allowed in there. Genuinely, it felt dead. Even though there were still speakers and music and all that, in comparison, it felt dead and flat. And how do I know? Because we were pitch side in the pod. Yeah. And we were pitch side in the pod, broadcasting on Sky for the 100, and you could barely hear yourself think, I've actually had to have some earpieces made so I can cope with their Formula One earpieces, so I can cope with the noise at the 100 next year, assuming that I'm doing it. Um, and I got to Chelmsford, and it just felt so dead and flat, genuinely. Whereas before, it was the big thing. Yeah. But, you know, so I'd like to see more of that transfer to the international game, if I'm honest. What's the harm? You know, it's a 2020 game, it's entertainment. That's what we should be, you know, should be focused on a, 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 a customer experience, a spectator experience. Um, but God, it was good. I mean, it was so good. And I it's whetted the appetite for next year's comp. I mean, massively. In the women's. For the men, you know, they've got the overseas players. The big name overseas players hopefully come in next year and that will raise that standard too. Um, so there's, there's a lot to look forward to. I know there are detractors. You're always going to get it. And mainly it's for the counties, from the counties that didn't necessarily get themselves a franchise. But that's life. Yeah, I'm with you pretty much on everything you said. I, I think I, I was wanting to weigh, weigh, weigh up what, what it was going to be like once I'd seen it, once I'd experienced it. The true test for, for me was taking my two teenage boys to watch... Yeah. Um, both the women and the men's play um, at, at Old Trafford um, and they enjoyed the, the women's game as much as the men's uh, both of them are sporty lads as well they enjoyed the the atmosphere the loudness that you talk about they enjoyed that and that was the thing they took away most from it so it was an yeah. experience it was fun there was um, there was sound there was a, there was feeling to it um, so it was more than just the the, the product on the pitch um, the key, the key to the hundred as well, is for, for the women's game is that they are aligned with the men. So yep. the Manchester Originals have a men's and women's team. So if you are a Manchester Original supporters, you support the women and men. Correct. On the website, the men and the women are together as there. So 
that alignment, yeah. much as they do in the Big Bash League, yeah. that alignment. So if, if the Manchester Originals three years down the line are playing at Liverpool, yeah. they might go and watch the Manchester Original. Um, and that branding and that alignment between the women and the men in that sense is critical. Yeah, I completely agree. And yeah, I'm hoping that um, that Sophie, Danny, there's Phoebe Graham and Katie Levick, they're the four players that um, have been on the podcast previously and all of whom played in the in the 100. I'm hoping to try to get um, a time where they're all available for half an hour to come back and have another conversation with us to, to just reflect on their own individual and collective views of what it was like to be part of that first summer where the 100 took place. Daggers, I could quite easily chat to you for, for hours and hours, but um, really appreciate you making the time to, to share just some of your reflections on your own life, both as a, as a junior coming through the, the ranks from that very first time as a 10 year old when your friend persuaded you to go down to Heaton Cricket Club in Bolton, to then being a young pro and playing second team cricket as a, as a youngster, to then eventually having um, had that, that, that hunger and desire uh, and bravery to, 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 to hammer down the door of 13, 14 uh, counties and eventually be awarded that first contract with Warwickshire before moving to Leicestershire and then going into you know, your career as it is now in broadcasting and radio and television. It's been an absolute pleasure for me to, to, to listen and I, I'm sure it will be the same for, for everybody else who listens to the podcast. Thank you so much. Well, Tom, it's an absolute pleasure. I'll more than happily uh, come on again. Uh, I still think the jeans grief that I gave you uh, is worth another podcast, so feel free to shout any time. Yeah, well, I'll hold you to that. We'll, we'll definitely uh, talk and get something sorted. Thanks very much. No worries, mate.